I think we'll get started. Welcome, everybody. So, uh, one week before Thanksgiving break, so just so everybody is on the same calendar, um, next week's Thanksgiving, I think you remember that. So we won't have class. Then we'll have class one week after that, and then Northwestern, I think, is done um, after that. So, uh, so we have one class remaining uh, after today, um, and uh, next semester we will be working through the uh, epistles of 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. Um, and so the Gospel of John was written by the Apostle John um, to uh, help us to understand that Jesus was the Christ. Uh, the epistles of John are really focused on our own internal walk, and so help us to know whether we are following Christ. Um, and so we're going to take a look at what those qualifications are uh, for a believer who's following uh, Christ closely. We are going to wrap up over the next two weeks the book of Philippians. So if you have a Bible, open your Bibles uh, to chapter 4 of the book of Philippians. Um, this semester we've been working through the book of Philippians. It's known as the Epistle of Joy. Uh, Paul is the apostle who writes uh, Philippians under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And uh, he mentions joy 16 different times. We're going to see multiple references in the passage today to joy. Um, and so this isn't joy associated with his circumstances. He is in jail. He is chained to a guard. Um, he is not out uh, evangelizing the lost like he had intended, and yet he is joyful because he sees God's sovereignty uh, in what's going on and understand what God is doing uh, through it. Uh, chapter 4, which is where we're at today, is um, a, a, a critical, I think, passage for us in our day and time. Um, so there is a lot of discussion in our culture today about mental health. Um, why do we see so much um, depression? Why do we see so much violence? Why do we have people um, with mass shootings? <clears throat> what, are, what, is the, what is behind all of these activities? Now, you could actually title this section, uh, John MacArthur titles it uh, Spiritual Stability. I would uh, title it something a little different. I would say it's Christian Mind Control. Um, so that sounds terrible, so that's why MacArthur is better at titling things than I am. Um, but what it is, is it's really an intent to help us to understand where we should put our minds, what we should be thinking on a regular basis, and how that thought process helps us to practice uh, things in an appropriate uh, way. And so uh, open your Bibles, if you're not there already, to uh, Philippians 4, and we're going to start in verse 1. Uh, he starts by saying in verse 1, Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. <clears throat> so what is the therefore there? We're starting with the therefore. Therefore always refers back to everything prior, or at least something prior. And the therefore is referring to um, what he's written thus far, but specifically um, what we, we covered the last few weeks, which is that our citizenship is in heaven. So we are citizens of heaven. We are not, um, we are eternal beings, and we are not to consume ourselves with the here and the now, um, because our citizenship is not here, it is in heaven. And that we are, while we are here, to become more and more like Christ. 
And so that's what we've covered over the course of the last few weeks. And so in order to do that, in order to uh, become more like Christ, we need to control our thoughts and our actions. And so he says, um, therefore, my brothers, so I'm gonna, what I'm gonna about to tell you is how to do this, um, whom I love and long for. How does he feel about the Philippians? Remember the Philippians were the, a church that he helped plant, um, that uh, he stayed with and helped grow. It's in a small town. Um, he was there for a, an extended period of time. Um, he, um, and they have supported him in his ministry. So they have regularly sent him gifts to help him on his missionary journey prior to him going uh, to jail for, for four years now about. And so there is this relationship. And so he, he dearly has a strong affection for them. But interestingly, he calls them his joy and his crown as well. So not only is he, um, does he have great feelings about them, but they are what he considers his joy and his crown. What would that mean? What, what could that possibly be referring to? Well, where, do, where does Paul get joy? Paul gets joy from living out God's purpose for him in his life, right? And so his fulfillment, his satisfaction comes from being the hands and feet of Christ. And they are literally the result of that, right? So they are his joy because he has done what he believes God has called him to do, and they have responded, and he sees that fruit. And they are his crown, and what is a crown? A crown is a reward, right? And it, it is a proof of success. Right? So they are his crown because it shows evidence that his life was fruitful, that his ministry was worthwhile. When you see individuals who are growing in Christ and who are living out um, the gospel message on a daily basis, then that is evidence that if those are the people that you have mentored and grown along, those are, those are the reward of a fruitful life. And so he sees the Philippians as his joy and his crown. And as his joy in his crown, he has a great deal of concern about how they act and they think. Right? And so that's where he's going to go next, is he's going to say, listen, because you are this, stand firm. So what is his instruction? Stand firm. Right? So if you remember in Philippians 2, 1 and 2, there were some issues. And he says, if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind. There seems to be some conflict uh, in the church, and he's concerned about that, and he, he wants them to, um, to, to be unified. In, ver in chapter 3, verse 1, he says, finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. There seems to be an attitude issue, right? Nowhere in the book of Philippians does he correct doctrine. Interesting, because... In Corinthians, when he sends his letter to the Corinthians, he's correcting doctrine. When he sends his letter to the Romans, he's correcting doctrine. When he sends it to the Ephesians, he's correcting doctrine. Right? They probably have their doctrine pretty straight. They got an attitude problem. They've got a pride problem. And he wants to address those things. Right? And so, um, so he comes here and he says, listen, stand firm. Stand firm on this gospel message. And this is how you do it. He says, stand firm thus. So that thus is referring to what he's about to say. I want you to stand firm, and I want you to stand firm in this way. Okay? 
And so stand firm in, thus in the Lord. And so that's his instruction. How are they to do so? <coughs> By following Christ. We see a, a similar passage on standing firm at the end of Ephesians. Ephesians 6, 13. You remember um, in VBS you guys made um, shields of faith, you know, uh, the belt of truth, um, the breastplate of righteousness, you remember. Um, this is a stand firm. He uses an army analogy there. But if you think about what is he talking about, he's talking about truth, he's talking about righteousness, and he's talking about feet that are uh, sound in the gospel. Where's your foundation? It's in the gospel of Christ, right? So you're going to notice very similar things here. We're going to talk about um, your mental state, tr truth versus lie, and we're going to talk about righteousness, your own actions, right? And we're going to talk about basing it in Christ, in the gospel. And so he's going to go thus. So what is the first thing that he addresses? And it's interesting, he flat out calls out two people in the church. Uh, look at verse 2. I, I entreat Yodia and I entreat Sancti to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. So he immediately addresses disunity, conflict, in the church. And who are these ladies? Well, they're clearly believers. Right? He says, um, whose names are in the book of life. They are clearly believers. Um, they were helpers. They labored side by side with him. So they were effective in the gospel message. Um, they were active in the church. And yet they were in conflict with each other. So what was the nature of that conflict? Well, it couldn't have been doctrinal, because every time in the scriptures that we see Paul see a doctrinal issue, he addresses the doctrine. He sides one side or the other. He calls out Peter, the apostle Peter, the rock that Christ was going to build the church on. He calls him out on a doctrinal issue in one of his letters, right? He's not afraid to call out doctrinal issues. But he doesn't say anything here. He doesn't even take sides. He simply says to this one individual in the church, Come alongside these two and help them to agree. So what does that tell you about the conflict? It was a conflict about personal preference. Right? It was a conflict about opinion. It was a conflict about, I really would rather sing the hymns than sing you know, choruses. It, it, it was some silly, non-doctrinal issue <clears throat> that was dividing these two very effective, important women in the church. It was personal preference over doctrine. And he's saying, listen, help them to agree in the Lord. And I just, I want to briefly touch on, I asked the question in the sheet, is all conflict wrong? And the answer is no. When there are doctrinal issues, there has to be conflict. Right? Someday when I retire, I'd like to write a book that said, that's titled The Necessity of Conflict in the Pursuit of Peace. Now that sounds crazy. Um, I've had that title in my head for a long time. Um, but um, there is a necessity for us to address, and, and really what he Paul's saying here is stand firm. There's this idea that we must push off falsehood, right? And if we want to have peace, we need to make sure that we're addressing sin. But in this case, there was not sin. It was simply personal preference, okay? And so he is saying, listen, what is the instruction that he gives? Agree in the Lord. 
cultivate peace, seek harmony, help others to see unity. Um, so the first step in st spiritual stability is to humble ourselves, to put off our own personal preference, right, and to seek unity with others. It's not that we don't have personal preferences, but those aren't the most important thing. Unity is by far more important. Okay, so that's the first step in standing firm. The second step, verse 4, rejoice in the Lord always, I say it again, rejoice. So when should we rejoice? Always. Now that sounds a little crazy, right? When should we rejoice? Always. In all circumstances, no matter what's going on, and this is not a suggestion. This is a commandment, right? It's, it's, it's not a suggestion. We are to rejoice. But why are we to rejoice? Are we to rejoice in our circumstances? No, not necessarily. In, our, in the people around us? No, people are going to disappoint us. In our successes? No, because we'll have failures as well. Um, so what are we supposed to be rejoicing in? We're supposed to be rejoicing in the Lord, right? We are to take a step back and have an eternal mindset and understand and remember what Christ has done. So today in church, we're going to take um, the Lord's Supper. We're going, to, we're going to practice communion. Jesus Christ gave us, commands us to do this, and he does this, he says, in remembrance of me. We are fickle people, and we forget what Christ has done. Right? And we, he's given us certain practices. Sunday's another one. We set aside a day where we are to take a step back, we're to pause, and we're to remember. The Lord's Supper is another one where we stop and we pause and we remember what Christ has done. We can have joy no matter what our circumstances are if we step back and we remember what Christ has done. Right? What we deserve, if we understand the, the bad news, which is what we deserve is as soon as we sin one time that we go to hell and we burn forever. Doesn't that sound wonderful? That's what we deserve. The good news is we don't have to have that penalty because Christ died for us. And understanding those two things, if we accept Christ as Savior and Lord and accept the work that he did as sufficient to forgive me for my sins, then I can rejoice no matter what my circumstances is because it doesn't matter. Nothing else matters, right? And so he says, rejoice in the Lord always. And if you want to dig into this a little bit more, uh, Romans 8, 31 and following. So maybe just maybe flip there a minute. I think we have time, I think. I'm a little nervous. I think we have time. Romans 3, 8. Romans 8 is full of, of great truth. And this is part of it. 8, Romans 8, 31 and following. He says, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can stand against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? If it is God who justifies, who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? 
As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all day long. We are to be regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loves us. That passage is odd because it basically says you'll probably go through all of this difficulty. He doesn't say you're not going to go through that difficulty. He actually says you will, and yet you won't be separated from Christ. And so you can have joy, right? And so rejoice in the Lord always. Back to chapter 4. How does having a rejoicing mindset increase mental stability and reduce conflict? And this is really an acknowledgement of the sovereignty of God, right? Because we, if we understand that God is sovereign over all things, then we understand that that person who is irritating us, God brought them into play to irritate us for our own good. Right? That person who just sinned against us, God wanted that to happen. He allowed that to happen so that we could learn to minister, to have patience, to grow, etc. It's an odd way of looking at that, but if we acknowledge the sovereignty of God, nothing is happening that's outside God's will. That job you just lost was his will, right? That person who just cheated you was his will. And what he wants is how are you going to respond? How are you going to become more Christ-like in your response to those things happening to you? Are we really ready to acknowledge that Christ, that God is in control of all things, right? That he is sovereign over all, that he is the one who decides and that he works all things for our good. Are we ready to do that? And then secondarily, what it is, is as a mindset that understands how much we've been forgiven so that we are able to forgive others readily, right? So there's all sorts of warnings in the scripture. Uh, Jesus says in Matthew 6, 14, for if you forgive other people when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others for their sins, your Father will not forgive you of your sins, right? So an acknowledgement of the forgiveness of God for us helps us to rejoice and it sets our mind on able to reduce conflict because we want to forgive others. Verse 5, he goes on, and he says, Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. If you've got an NIV Bible, it says, Let your gentleness be evident to all. So that word can be translated a number of different ways. So it has this idea of being lenient or big-hearted or patient in the face of injustice. So that word reasonable or gentle means that you are long-suffering, right? That you are literally interpreted, you are to accept less than you deserve. So that's a normal trait for all of us, right? We're all standing up saying, I'll take less than what I, I, I'm due, right? And yet that's what we're being commanded. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone, for the Lord is at hand. He is there, he is in it, and he, he is allowing this to happen. Show how reasonable you can be. 
And I, I can say, well, how does this help with conflict? Well, most of us want to be the judge, right? Most of us want, we, we, we want to take things into our own hands. We want to make things right. Like somebody does something wrong, and we want to make sure they pay for it, right? That's, that's the way we think. And that's not the way that God wants us to think. He wants us to understand that he is the judge and that he will be the one who takes care of that and for us to give that to him and he wants us to be reasonable. Romans 12:17 says, Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, my dear friends. But leave room for God's wrath, for it is written, it is mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. This idea that you are to respond differently, that you understand that God is the judge, and that he will settle the score. He'll either settle the score with that person, or he will, if that person puts their faith in Christ, he has already settled the score with Christ. Christ already has taken it. And you don't need to be the judge. Does not repaying evil for evil apply to the legal system? Should we not take part in that? Right. So, um, so the Peacemaker book, I'm going to do a little ad for the Peacemaker. You ask a great oh, question. Took the last she one. took the last one. Hold it up. <laughs> <laughs> um, so... Um, so we'll put we'll put more up there. Don't worry. Um, so the Peacemaker book is a fantastic book on on conflict, and um, and he addresses very specific issues like that. Like should we never um, address anything? So how much should we overlook versus how much should we address versus how much uh, outside the church? Then how should we handle things? Right. So I'll give you the 10-second version, and then you should look at the book, um, because he does a really nice job with it. So we should overlook an offense from our brothers and sisters as long as it's not hurting them, hurting you, creating separation between you and them, or dishonoring God. So if somebody is, has an offense, um, we should try to overlook it. If it's hurting someone else or hurting them or is dishonoring God, then out of a, a desire, out of love, for them, out of motivation to restore them, we should one-on-one -on -one address it. And that's the Matthew 18 passage. How do we one-on-one -on -one and then somebody with somebody else and then with others from the church, okay? Um, outside the church, um, how do we deal with this? So uh, 1 Corinthians talks a lot about inside the church, people suing each other and how terrible that is, and we should be resolving these conflicts ourselves. So inside the church, if there's a conflict, we should try to address that again inside the church. Outside the church, um, we are able to use the legal system. Now, um, that still doesn't mean we shouldn't necessarily follow all those rules. Like, if we can overlook, we should overlook. If we, if it is something that we, if if us bringing a suit to someone trying to get that back um, would dishonor Christ in any way, we should let it go, right? Um, but uh, there are circumstances in which we are fully capable of using the legal system to make sure that. Um, somebody is held responsible. So the other thing, the flip side of that is you don't want to encourage irresponsible behavior. And so if um, pursuing this helps someone realize the responsibility of their actions, 
then it is appropriate to pursue that in the right context and mindset. That's the 10, 20 second version of, the book's really much better at it, so uh, I would encourage that. But I hope that answers the question. Um, but here we're talking reasonable, right? So we're saying, listen, if at all possible, we want to take less than what we deserve because we know that God is in control. Verse 6, he goes on. So we are to first seek unity. We are to second have a rejoiceful heart. We are third to be extremely reasonable in the way that we treat others. And then fourth, we're not to be anxious about anything. Verse 6, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. So what should we worry about? Absolutely nothing. So I woke up this morning at about 4 a.m. worried about work, and I'm coming here to teach this today. Um, and I'm like, I literally was praying to God, help me to actually follow my own teaching. Um, help me to deal with these things in an appropriate way, right? Help me not to be anxious about anything, uh, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, bring them um, to you, because I tend to worry, right? We all tend to worry about is this going to work is this going to go forward what's going to happen next and so jesus addresses this in matthew 6 verse 25 and following he says therefore i tell you do not worry about your life what you will eat or drink about your body what you will wear is not your life more than food your body more than clothes look at the birds of the air they do not sow or reap or store away in barns and yet your heavenly father feeds them are you much are you not much more valuable than they can any one of you by worrying add a single day or hour to your life and why do you worry about clothes see how the flowers of the field grow they do not labor or spin yet i tell you that not even solomon in all his splendor was addressed like one of these if that is how God clothes the grass of the field, which are here today and tomorrow is thrown onto the fire, will he not much more clothe you, you of little faith? Do not worry, saying, what shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the pagans run after all these things, and our Heavenly Father knows that you need them. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. God's saying, listen, we are to focus. Jesus gives us the instruction. We're to focus on pursuing Christ. Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. Right? And then the rest will take care of itself. So where do we turn? When we begin to worry, we turn to God in prayer. Right? He says, do not worry about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication. Right? Supplication is requests. So you bring your requests, your concerns, your needs to God and let him to deal with it. Where do we put our hope? Do we put our hope in our bank account, our ability, our job, our relationships? No, we put our hope in Christ. We put our hope in the God of the universe who is so sovereign over all things and knows exactly that every day that you will live and what's going to happen each and every one of those days. 
And that should give us some level of confidence. We should be able to stand firm in this. How does that help us to avoid um, worry? Um, interestingly, in knowing all things are controlled by him, we can have thanksgiving. So he says, with thanksgiving, let your request be named to God. So what is our mind supposed to be set at? We're supposed to A, we're supposed to not worry. He says, don't do this and to bring this to, but then what are we supposed to put our mind on? Again, thanksgiving. On remembering who Christ is. On remembering what God has done. And then lifting that up. And when we focus not on the unknown, but on the known, then we don't have to worry because we, we, we can see in our own lives what Christ has done and where he has taken us and we can know and we can trust that he knows what he's doing. Right? So we can have thanksgiving we, we, if we set our minds on all the wonderful ways that he has blessed us. <coughs> uh, Paul says in Romans 7, 24, what a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body of the subject of death? Thanks be to God who delivers me through Christ Jesus our Lord. He bases it on the fact that he, his own salvation, he is so thankful for that he knows that God turned him from his sin, addressed him on the road to Damascus, and turned him in a different direction and is guiding him forward. So when you trust in God, remembering what he has done for you and exactly and that he has you exactly where he wants you, there is no need to worry. Right? Do you believe that? Do you believe that he has you exactly where he wants you? In all situations. Even if those situations are really bad. Right? Really hurtful. He has you exactly where he wants you. And if you can trust that, then you can stand firm. And then he says, listen, verse 7, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. If we start to set our minds on these things, then we will have peace. It won't be our own peace. It'll be the peace of God. And so again, you're trusting in the sovereignty of God. You're remembering the grace that he has given us for saving us from our sins. We are seeking unities with others. And then we can have peace. Verse 8, finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is anything of excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. And so, what should we set our focus on as we stand firm, as we look at situations in which there is conflict and difficulty, when we don't know where to turn? Um, what should we, where should we set our mind? Where should we focus? Um, so, years ago, there was a book that was published called The, Pos the Power of Positive Thinking. I'm not a real big fan, right? Because it was based on just denial of the truth, really. I mean, um, denying what really was going on. That's not what this is, okay? So he's not saying deny the truth. I mean, life is hard, and people will disappoint us, and we will be treated unfairly. 
right? So that that is that that is going to happen, right? We are going to fail. But he is saying, listen, even in that, so if you're in a conflict and somebody has wronged you, more than likely, nine times out of ten, even though they might be 80% wrong, you might be 20% wrong, right? And if you want to avoid conflict, if you want to show your reasonableness, if you want to stand firm and trust that God has you in that conflict for a reason, you can focus on the 20%, right? You can focus, if this person has wronged you nine times out of ten, you can focus on the one time that person did something right and nice to you. You can choose to focus on the God's grace. And so when we look at other people, we can choose to look at them and say, they have failed in all these ways. Or we can choose to look at them and say, I see God moving here. And I see them improving there. And I want to come alongside and help them to grow in that. Right? And so that's what he's saying. Is He's saying, listen, there, God, is, God is at work. And every person who has the Holy Spirit working in them, God is at work. And they may still be a pain in the butt. Right? But God is at work. And I am going to glorify God for the ways that I see his grace. And then I'm going to come alongside and seek unity and to build up and have God use me as his hands and feet in that person's life. And if you can get there, your marriage, if, you're, if you get married, it's going to be good, right? Your um, relationships at work will be much better and easier. If you can get to that point where you're like, listen, I am going to focus on the good things I'm going to, I'm going to set my mind because then... What happens is we are able to put off bitterness and wrath, right, and anger. Because we are focused on how is God going to use me to minister in that person's life. And so we can stand firm in our faith and we can be the hands and feet of Christ. You because know, bitterness really is driven by a needless dwelling on the negative, right? When we set and we start to build on that, when we, when we don't forgive and we sit there and we go, we rerun something in our mind over and over and over again, it grows and grows and grows. But if we forgive and we focus on the positive and we come alongside to help with those things that someone's struggling with, if that's our mentality... We can have peace and unity with that person. Verse 9, what you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. What do we need to do? We need to practice. This is not natural. This is not what a normal human being will do. You, a normal human being is going to be anxious. A normal human being is going to want more than what they deserve, not less. A, a normal human being is not going to be rejoiceful because they're going to be focused on all the disappointments in their life. And so we need to practice focusing our minds on the sovereignty of God, the justice of God, 
the graciousness of God. We might, we might be burdened by our guilt. We've failed so many times. And the devil just keeps reliving all those things in our mind, right? Of all the ways that we failed and we've sinned. And we need to remind ourselves of the graciousness of God. That God, when I accept Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord, has forgiven me for all of that. And I don't need to dwell on that anymore. Because God is good and gracious and has forgiven me. And so I can have a positive mindset, even though I've struggled throughout my history of my life. Right? I can be forgiven. And so from a summary standpoint, what are, what's the secret to good mental health? A proper understanding and confident belief in the character of God. That's another book, right? How do we address mental health in our day? Understanding the character of God. That he is just, that he is sovereign, that he is gracious. And if we set our mindset there, we can have a very positive encouraging, stable mind. But we need to practice that. Questions? Comments? Associated with it? Now you see why I like this passage so much? Because it's so relevant today. Okay? So what if you're in an abusive relationship? Do you stay in that relationship because that's God's will for you? Or do you... Yeah, great, great question. Right. So there is a safety issue. Again, the Peacemaker book addresses this. So there's a safety issue. So if there is an abusive relationship, the individual who's causing the abuse has rejected Christ and is not living out Christ. So at that point, separation is appropriate, right? So separation, not necessarily divorce. So at that point, you should go seek um, help so you can remove yourself from the dangerous situation. You go seek help, hopefully in your church, um, for those who would intervene and be able to see if we can get this resolved, see if we can turn that person who is not living for Christ back to living for Christ. Um, how would you, you know, if you're going through conflict in your own life, but you're, you're able to see God's work and provision through that, yet someone who is close to you mentors you, um, works closely with the law, and solves a lot of problems through that, and puts their hope in institutions. How, how do you live in relationship with them and maybe help them see what you're going through? Yeah, you know, I'm, so the, in... First Corinthians, where he addresses lawsuits among believers. What, he, what the, the motive there is? Listen, um, for the good of the church, for the to show Christ to those outside the church, that, that those outside will see the gospel if we as believers don't turn to outside for judges, but come in and we we resolve things appropriately. Because outside the church, everything is resolved by fight. Right? I mean, it's by proving the other person wrong. So the methodology outside the church is to try to demonize the other. Inside the church, we can address conflict by being humble and honest, right? By addressing the, the sin, but also the positive, by, by seeking to, um, to, to find unity at the end, not, not one wins and one loses. And so it's a totally different um, approach. And so, you know, in your situation, I would be encouraging them, listen, what's the approach we're going to take here? What's the most positive outcome that we can come to? Because if we go outside the church, what we're going to see is we're going to see people trying to prove the other one is 100% wrong, you know, and, and demonizing the other in that situation. So for mental health, um, what would you say, because I, I agree with you, but also, like, some mental health, some people have chemical 
chemical. Yeah. So, so for people on like medication, like what would you say about that? Yeah. So I'm real careful there. So I'm I'm into genetics, right? So um, there are genetic mutations that cause issues, whether those issues are neurological or whether they're physical. Um, no question that there can be chemical issues, um, and so we need to be careful uh, in those situations. There are uh, appropriate times for that. Um, I've talked to several medical doctors over the years, and they will tell you that probably 90% of the patients that they see that come in with some sort of mental issue is probably more spiritual than it is mental, but they don't have the ability to address the spiritual, so they have to address it um, physically, right? And, and so that physical addressing of it um, provides some relief. Um, my concern with that, so um, I know we have potential doctors in the room, so um, that's an ethical issue that you've got to think through, exactly how are you going to address that. Um, and, you know, the fact of the matter is they've got 15 minutes to try to help you or a half hour to try to help you. They don't have that time to invest in you. Inside the church, if, we, if there is something like this, we can address it in a much different way than what a medical doctor can. All that said is there is 10 to 20 percent of people who, are, who need have a chemical imbalance. We should be doing those screenings. We should be figuring out what those are and we should be addressing those chemically. And as the science advances, we're gonna be able to do that better medically as well um, because there's panels that you can take, you can see the chemical deficiencies, et cetera. And maybe like for, because there's a lot of stigma and I know a lot of people who have had like anxiety or like depression or some mental health thing that they're not a strong enough Christian or they don't get Yeah, I know, and I certainly don't wanna go there with, now I would say the Holy Spirit is dwelling in us and does convict us of our sin. Uh, so if you look at Psalm 42, um, you know David was struggling mentally and his, his physical nature was failing because of his sin. So the Holy Spirit does do that. And so we need to be careful because that could be what's going on. Um, but on the flip side, it could be something chemical as well. So we need to be very careful not to pass judgment, but to come alongside and try to figure out what's going on. Like I said, the medical field's growing dramatically. There's all sorts of panels that you can do to try to figure these things out. So. Um, with the passage, do not be anxious about anything. Um, I've heard some people interpret that as almost going like the opposite of being pragmatic. And like, we don't need to plan anything for this ministry. We're just gonna show up and like everything's gonna be provided. Like, and sometimes that is the case, but what would you speak into that, you know, about some people interpret that being anxious is actually being almost in a way practical about it. Yeah, yeah. So, um, so we need to take the scriptures out of, as a total and let the scriptures interpret the scriptures. Jesus himself says, who built the tower without first calculating the cost? Right? I mean, and so you've got to take the scriptures in totality. He's not saying in there um, that we shouldn't do any planning. Um, we should be planning. And, and that's this balance between we saw in, um, in chapter 3... Um, no, chapter 2, 12 and 13, this balance between personal responsibility and God's sovereignty, right? We're to work out our salvation in fear and trembling, and at the same time, God's working. And so, um, so same, same situation here, we're to put off anxiousness and trust him, and yet do whatever we can to do our best uh, in the situation. Other questions or comments? So hold on to this passage, because this passage has been useful for me and my mindset uh, on a regular basis. Um, just refer back to it as you um, have situations in your life where you're struggling with um, 
anxiety or conflict or um, he starts off with conflict in this passage, right? And so if you think about um, this as a passage on how do you address conflict, you think about how you're going to first, when you go into conflict, you're going to go first back to Christ and rejoice in him. So you start off by saying, okay, this is a conflict that I'm dealing with. First thing I'm going to do is make sure my mind's set right. I'm going to go back and worship God. So that, that's what we all do when we're in conflict, right? We go back and we make sure our mind's set on God and we, we worship him. No, we don't do that. We, we should do that. That's what we should practice, right? And then um, to, to make sure that we are um, being very reasonable, right? And then that we don't worry about what the outcome might be. And then we can actually address that conflict effectively with someone else. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your work and uh, for just the practical nature of your word, that it instructs us on how to live and how to think so that we might be able to stand firm, so that we might not be tossed to and fro like the waves, so that we might be able to be a bright light uh, shining in the darkness, that others might see the hope that we have and may want to know you. And so help us to do this so that we might be able to be witnesses uh, for others so that they might be able to know you and have true forgiveness and then have stability uh, as well. Um, help us to have the peace that comes from you and show that to others. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thanks for coming. Two weeks and then we're done for the semester.